Hi there everyone and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser and with me today is Director of Intensive Care at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne and former ANZIC's President Steve Warrilow. Steve is co-author of the recently released ANZIC's Guiding Principles for Complex Decision Making during the COVID-19 outbreak and Steve joins me on the podcast today. Steve, welcome. Thanks very much, Todd. Steve, what, were the, uh, what was the reason for the development of these guidelines? Yes, so intensivists make complex decisions uh, regarding patient care every day of their professional lives. However, I think members of ANZIC certainly pointed out to us that there was circumstances that might be different uh, under a global pandemic of COVID-19 insofar as perhaps for many of us, the first time, for the first time in our professional lives, we might be making required to make decisions at an individual patient level based on resource availability. I think it's fair to reflect that in our relatively well-resourced healthcare system, that we are protected from having to make resource-based decisions when it comes down to individual patient management on a day-to-day basis in a way that uh, might be more familiar to our colleagues that work in other jurisdictions that aren't so resource replete, Uh, but this would certainly be a new experience for us. So acknowledging that, many members contacted ANZICS and indicated that they would uh, be interested in the development of a guiding document. So, Steve, this is a a scenario where resources are at a point where they're compromised to to the level that we would need to be making decisions about patients, not just based on whether they would benefit from ICU, but uh, on the limitations around the resources available to the treating clinician. Is that correct? Yeah, that's quite right. So, in our normal uh, day-to-day clinical roles, we can largely admit the majority of patients, in fact, perhaps every patient, that we think is likely to have benefit from intensive care. In fact, I think if most intensive care clinicians reflect on their practice, we'll sometimes admit patients that we think will perhaps only have a limited capacity to benefit, but we want to give a trial of supports to see what happens. And that's, I think, pretty reflective of our normal practice across Australia and New Zealand. Uh, But this might be different insofar as we may have patients that we can definitely see would be likely to benefit but may not have the resources, actual beds or or ventilators or personnel to look after them. I would imagine that the practising clinician would be keen to have a set of fairly dogmatic guidelines that would help them to make decisions under stress and under... Uh, quite a lot of adversity, but you have resisted that temptation. Can you tell me why you made that decision? Yes, certainly. I guess there's two major uh, domains that we explicitly uh, shied away from, I suppose, when we were meeting as a a writing group. The the first was we avoided uh, the, the, the approach that excluded certain categories of patients. Uh, We felt that those would potentially be contentious, uh, that it may not always be possible to get agreement, and also there was a risk of inadvertent or, or indeed overt discrimination, uh, which could unintentionally flow from such an approach. So uh, those who have read the guidelines will note that we, we have avoided, for example, saying that patients who perhaps have 
advanced cancer or who may be dialysis dependent or, or similarly comorbid, we've avoided those patients shouldn't be considered for intensive care admission or treatment. And that's, we're really promoting the notion that if someone was considered eligible or, or a candidate for intensive care treatment uh, during non-COVID times, then in a sense, they remain a, a, a potential candidate for intensive care treatments during COVID and that one would then prioritise uh, those patients that one had to consider for admission based on other, um, other considerations. Another point that you've alluded to that we, we avoided was the concept of admission criteria or, or exclusion criteria. And uh, again, it's, I think we often uh, like the idea of relatively simple solutions for complex problems. Uh, that's a very human approach and a very seductive approach, but it become, can become challenging. For example, if we were to indicate for example, an age cutoff. Uh, just say we, we stated that patients over 75 ought not be considered for intensive care admission during a COVID pandemic period where the system was overwhelmed. That does create some difficulties insofar as, firstly, uh, no ethical difference between a 74-year-old and a 76-year-old. Ethically, they'll be largely the same. And also, selection criteria, not particularly agile, uh, they don't necessarily take into account changes uh, in resource availability, such as improvements in resource availability. Uh, similarly, as we touched on earlier, asking clinicians to agree on criteria could be challenging, uh, even amongst 17 people that were on the running committee who all got along very well. Uh, I suspect we would have um, struggled to agree uh, on criteria. And also, as soon as you uh, have criteria in a similar to categories, um, anyone that feels that they might be missing out uh, would um, feel pretty threatened and vulnerable and, uh, and rather unhappy, I might suggest, uh, that, that there were black and white criteria uh, and that they probably, uh, I think there's, there's some evidence and certainly I think it's most people's lived experience, that criteria or categories are not a great substitute for the well-informed, experienced judgment of a clinician who's actually involved in the decision-making at, at the bedside. Stephen, many people would argue that that's the kind of um, practice that most people are performing as it stands and making judgments about, uh, about their patients. So in the context of an overwhelmed uh, system where you have more patients who would benefit from intensive care than you physically have the capacity to care for, how do the guidelines assist you? That's a good question because, and essentially, what I've just been described is is the foundations of our, our professional judgment and decision making all the time in, in in usual practice. What we've done is taken those founding principles and continue to apply them because this is not a new ethical framework or paradigm that we're proposing. What we are suggesting is that where there are more patients than resources then in a sense, no one is ineligible. It's rather a case of making clinical prioritisations. And firstly, we've gone about saying that we shouldn't admit people to ICU who don't need ICU. So if someone was not considered a candidate for intensive care uh, admission during normal times, then there's no reason to think that they would be considered a candidate now. And also for those patients who were 
seriously rather well or, or, or not seriously ill enough requiring intensive care interventions, that those patients should not be admitted to intensive care. And then we really go about setting out the, the, the framework for prioritisation. Uh, for example, um, I think it's fairly uncontroversial that uh, a patient who's likely to, to benefit from intensive care interventions and recover and survive to hospital discharge based on their illness severity and likelihood of responding. Uh, someone who's to do, likely to do well with support should be prioritised. Uh, those patients who also have a predicted long life uh, after recovering from a critical illness uh, should be prioritised. And, uh, and this is a little challenging, but uh, those who are likely to have a, a, a good recovery and return to a high level of function and that's a little challenging because um, someone's quality of life or function, functional capacity is very subjective and we've, we've recognised and acknowledged that this, this estimation can be challenging. But, uh, but I think we could accept the principle that someone that's likely to, re to return to a, a similar or, or close or, or, or similar um, quality of life to that that they had before their critical illness should also be prioritised. And we've also explicitly stated on what basis the decision should not be made. So are relevant considerations such as someone's gender, political views, um, social connections, wealth, uh, ethnicity, nationality, race, uh, religion, those sorts of things or, or gender or sexual preference are clearly irrelevant to the decision and we've made that point very clearly as well. Stephen, one of the most challenging and I would imagine frightening kind of scenarios for an intensivist is the situation where the resources are already overwhelmed and there's further referrals where people who are being referred may in fact be deemed of a higher priority than those already in the beds. What is the sort of the ethical approach to this type of scenario? I think that is uh, that is the nightmare scenario for any practising intensivist, um, as you've rightly indicated. Uh, I, I think it's easy, in a sense, to agree on the ethical principles that there's no ethical or, indeed, in most jurisdictions, legal distinction between withholding and withdrawing treatment. It feels very different at a human level, however. Uh, we've taken the view that um, consideration for benefit and prioritisation would apply to people who are within the ICU and those who um, may require admission to ICU and acknowledged that there may be circumstances where someone who is admitted uh, who is not responding well and uh, is likely to have a poor outcome may, for example, have um, artificial life supports withdrawn under after appropriate consultation so that they may be provided to someone who's likely to indeed benefit who's not currently in the unit. I don't think anyone should underestimate the challenges of, at, a, at a human level for a clinician having to make those decisions. And we've certainly indicated in the guidelines that wherever possible, there need to be escalation processes within an organisation. And ideally, um, these escalation processes nearly clearly need to be developed before there's a crisis. And the way in which they'll be implemented and applied need to be conveyed to clinicians well ahead of time. Stephen, in Australasia, we've had the benefit of some time to prepare ourselves for, for this impending wave of patients. What has the experience been in other jurisdictions and how do the, the guidelines marry up against those developed internationally? 
So I, I think our guidelines are broadly reflective of other related documents that have been proposed elsewhere, uh, and some of those are referenced in, in our own document. I think many of these guidelines, including our own, have been uh, written by uh, groups or, or individuals who've had the benefit of sitting back um, in a somewhat academic and abstract manner, being able to think these through issues through very carefully and seek consultation, as we did with um, legal and ethical experts as well as consumers. And the documents have, have pretty common themes, as we've been touching on. I can only speculate what it might have been like for clinicians who felt entirely overwhelmed with their clinical demands in places like Northern Italy or, dare I say, it, New York and, um, and even parts of the United Kingdom where it's far from an abstract concept that these individuals, are, dare I say, it, perhaps often in the absence of having had local guidelines developed because things moved so fast that there wasn't time to develop such um, recommendations or guidance documents. And I imagine that they did the very best they could under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And I think we should reflect that we are the fortunate beneficiaries from the salutary lessons that come to us from um, the experiences of our colleagues overseas and, and the very challenging scenarios that they've had to deal with. And also the, the remarkable acceptance by the Australian and New Zealand communities to social distancing and lockdown that has spared us um, the, the, the most extreme uh, impacts that we've witnessed elsewhere and given us time to develop these documents and, and to have discussions like this and think through what our approach should be and to be uh, well informed so that if we are subjected to anything like what we've seen overseas that we've um, had more time to prepare and uh, also an opportunity to reflect on how we will respond. I'm speaking with Stephen Warrillow about the development of the guidelines to support complex decision-making during the pandemic crisis. And you can, of course, find a range of free resources related to upskilling for the outbreak and the outbreak itself at osler.force.com COVID. And it's all available free and with no registration required. Steve, who was involved in the development of these guidelines and what process did you go through to develop them? Certainly. So it all had to come together fairly rapidly because we had a lot of contact from um, the intensive care community, really um, uh, demanding that we develop something in a timely manner because at the, at the time that we were doing all this work, it seemed very possible that we would be overwhelmed within a matter of weeks. So mostly guidelines of this kind, as people might imagine, take months to years to bring together. And we brought them together in less than three weeks. Essentially, the ANZICS executive um, uh, expressions of interest were sought uh, with an effort to be uh, uh, inclusive of um, various jurisdictions, to be across Australia and New Zealand as much as possible. And uh, people might note that we didn't have every jurisdiction, uh, every state or territory represented, but we had most included uh, to make sure that we also had uh, a pretty good uh, go at getting... Um, reflections of diversity so that we had uh, people from large units and small units, people from a very academic intensive care background, those who were uh, not so, so academically inclined but very busy um, uh, hardworking intensivists, um, that we had um, some gender diversity and that also we had uh, representation from uh, legal experts, ethicists and, and the consumer involvement so that we could 
at least on our first cut, get a pretty broad reflection on what the clinical and non-clinical experts thought we ought to be doing in this space. And I must say, we rapidly achieved consensus on the key areas that we felt needed to be covered and the overall approach within the first hour of our discussions. Um, so 90% of the documents, uh, of the key themes, came together very rapidly. I guess we then spent a considerable amount of time on uh, a number of um, more, more challenging points, it's fair to say, where it wasn't so clear to any of us what the, what the right way forward was, and we were very, very wary of um, coming up with recommendations that might have unintended consequences or, or risk of being misinterpreted or, or misrepresented indeed. Um, so that involved a lot of to and fro with email correspondence and a lot of redrafting. Drafts were being recirculated uh, within 48 hours generally, requiring feedback. So it was a very demanding process of the 17 people that were involved uh, and a lot of work um, to, to bring it all together in a manner that everyone felt comfortable with uh, and, and as is always the case with a complex document of this kind, it's fair to say we, we didn't always get complete and consensus on everything. That, that isn't realistic. But what we did, did get was um, comprehensive agreement that we came up with a document that did genuinely reflect um, the, the views of the community, that it provided appropriate protections for potentially vulnerable groups and also would be a good guidance refer guiding reference for local hospitals and uh, jurisdictions to, to develop um, a document that would allow them to operationalise uh, these recommendations. And that, that was our goal. Um, in a sense, it's a living document to some degree in a way that's analogous to the ANZIC's COVID-19 guidelines, that we, when we released these, we were quite sure that they wouldn't be the, the last version uh, as we learned more during um, uh, the COVID-19 global pandemic and also received in, uh, feedback from um, the intensive care community, uh, specifically ANZICS members, but also the broader intensive care community and also um, the community at large uh, across uh, Australia and New Zealand. So there, there are plans uh, to, in the very near future, uh, take the feedback that's been received so far uh, and there's been a, a really broad range of, uh, of concepts that have been commented on and to incorporate those into a next iteration. Stephen, one of the anxiety that many clinicians have is around the legal uh, aspect of the decision-making. What sort of protections does a document like this provide for clinicians in making difficult decisions? So that's a really important issue to address. I think it's firstly very important to note that a society such as ANZIC's uh, isn't in a position to, to, to develop a document that provides absolute protection to any clinician uh, working in intensive care, not in a direct sense. But I think indirectly these documents are very powerful because what they do provide is a guidance framework that is um, widely supported by intensive care clinicians, uh, is represented across jurisdictions where those um, who wrote the document um, come from, and does provide, I think, a powerful platform to state as a community of practice what is a reasonable, ethical and supported approach to complex decision-making. And I think in an indirect sense, that is a very powerful protection, although I acknowledge there are limitations to that and it's not a direct form of protection. And one of the things we've noted is that clinicians may feel vulnerable 
uh, and that's mentioned uh, in the document. And the the guidance document really makes it very clear that under circumstances which are truly unprecedented potentially, where demand may well exceed resources available, that the responsibility and indeed the accountability for outcomes extends considerably beyond an individual clinician. And the accountability is borne by organisations such as a hospital uh, and also by government and government departments who are also responsible for um, the response to the pandemic. And again, I think that's an important principle to have encapsulated within a document such as this alongside a recommendation that where clinicians have acted in good faith, utilising their clinical resources to the best of their ability, have deployed resources appropriately and in accordance with guidelines such as this, that they should be afforded uh, protection from um, uh, from uh, legal actions uh, or similar actions that that may arise from uh, the course of their their work. And again, that that in a sense is an indirect protection, but I think it's certainly been noted by various departments of health that we've we've made that statement, and I think it's an important concept to convey both to the intensive care community but also the society that we serve and those that do really control resources such as departments of health and, and hospitals. Stephen, you referred a bit earlier to some of the more contentious parts of the, the guidelines in terms of developing them. What were some of the things that you struggled with as a group? Yes, so I, I think uh, one of the issues that has been a focus of discussions between those of us who are involved in the writing and some of the feedback has been how we um, the secondary considerations. Uh, for example, uh, what protections should be afforded to vulnerable groups in the community who may have um, uh, a historical legacy of being considerably disadvantaged and what is the responsibility of healthcare workers and intensive care medical staff in particular to um, factor those considerations to decision-making. And, and that's difficult. I think we all recognise that those are difficult issues to address. What we've tried to do in the guidance framework is take a very balanced approach, which is to recognise that ethicists and others have indicated that these may be legitimate secondary considerations, uh, that they're not primary, but that they may be important to consider uh, if a, a tiebreaker decision is required. And rather than leaving that to an individual clinician at the bedside, which is incredibly difficult for that person to do consistently, fairly, objectively and under a time-pressured situation, to note that these issues really need to be addressed at jurisdictional level and that jurisdictions and hospitals should consider how they might factor in those secondary considerations into decision-making and provide appropriate guidance to their clinicians before the need to implement such decisions arises. Uh, another issue that came up was, should there be prioritisation to frontline healthcare workers? Um, now, there, there's strong, a strong ethical foundation for such a concept that, uh, based on reciprocity as a principle, that if someone who goes in and takes a considerable risk upon themselves and perhaps secondarily on for their family by being involved in the care of a patient has an infectious pathogen um, that could make the healthcare worker quite unwell. That should a frontline healthcare worker indeed acquire an infection and become critically ill, that 
we really have a considerable responsibility as, as a society to prioritise that person for care uh, in accordance with the principle of reciprocity. And also there are good pragmatic reasons to do that as well. There, it has been noted in other jurisdictions uh, that where there isn't such an assurance or, or I guess a, an understood covenant of, of care that would be afforded uh, a frontline healthcare worker, then that causes potentially a considerable amount of anxiety to frontline healthcare workers and, and understandably considerably nurses um, because they are exposed arguably to a much greater degree than many of us might be as doctors. And that if we want people to feel confident coming to work and fulfilling their professional obligations and not be preoccupied by the stress and anxiety of, and worry of, of perhaps becoming unwell themselves and whether or not they'll be cared for, um, it's, then it's very important to have that concept uh, secondarily stipulated within the guidance documents such as this. So I guess those are two examples of considerations that um, we did deliberate very carefully over and chose our wording with extreme care. And um, those are probably the two areas that we've received the greatest amount of feedback on. Um, some feedback has been that vulnerable groups should be afforded more protections, that, that our document hasn't gone far enough. And some people, minority so far, I must say, expressing reservations that we've even identified this as a potential consideration at all. Um, I guess we knew when we wrote the document that um, we might have got it right if um, people at either end of the spectrum were a little bit unhappy with it. Um, I don't think it's realistic to write a document that will make everyone happy. Um, but I think on balance, um, we've got um, the, the key principles um, articulated fairly well, um, but we're certainly open to further feedback and do plan to have further iterations of this document in future. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast to go through the, the development of these guidelines, which are obviously essential to any practising intensivist in this scenario. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for asking me. Take care. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more interviews just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.